Um, hi, hi everyone. So, so this is the session um, on geoengineering um, and carbon drawdown. So we've got two speakers. We have got Holly, who's joining us on Zoom, um, who is author of After Geoengineering, Climate, Tragedy, Repair and Restoration, and Zach, who is speaking from Workers' Liberty. Yeah, so today I'm going to talk a bit about geoengineering and carbon drawdown, probably mostly about carbon drawdown, but I'm very happy to take questions and discuss either. Um, and so some of the questions I wanted to try to cover, why is anyone even talking about carbon removal? How much carbon removal is being discussed? How does anybody do that? Who could do it? is this all just going to delay cutting emissions? And what happens if we fail at both decarbonization and carbon removal? So that's that's quite a lot, <laughs> but I'll get started. The, the reason, I mean, one reason carbon removal is being increasingly discussed is all these net zero plans that you've heard about. So having the ability to remove some amount of carbon from the atmosphere is implicit in these plans. Um, that's because net zero means that there's some amount of positive emissions or residual emissions balanced by some amount of negative emissions. And this is kind of a, a typical scenario for net zero by mid-century, where there's um, some residual emissions from um, residential buildings, from transport mainly, from industry, I mean, a fairly small amount of emissions compared to what we have now, but still something that needs to be dealt with. And that's compensated by negative emissions, mostly from the, the power sector, from bioenergy with carbon capture and storage in most of these scenarios. So the assumption is that electricity goes fully decarbonized, um, actually doing some of the work of compensating for these residual emissions for things like aviation, shipping, some industry that's has, you know, really um, process emissions where um, carbon dioxide is emitted, for example, in, in making cement just from breaking rocks apart. So that's kind of how the, the mainstream view of net, a net zero scenario is. Um, so how do you define what's left over? Right now, it's kind of up to anybody to define what gets to be these leftover positive emissions. Um, so from a, a city standpoint, this is San Francisco's climate plan. They just say residual emissions are those where the city has limited options to eliminate or reduce further. If you're a company, you're gonna define these hard to abate emissions your own particular way. So this is something that really needs to be dealt with. In San Francisco's plan, most of their leftover emissions are from transportation, and they say that they would have about 12% of business's usual emissions to deal with, um, which is pretty good compared to a lot of these plans. And so carbon removal is playing a few different roles in, in these net zero scenarios. It's compensating for some amount of the continued emissions. Um, it's also compensating for emissions of other greenhouse gases um, like nitrous oxide, which I don't think we have time to get into today. Um, and it's also compensating for historical emissions or legacy emissions, emissions that were emitted over the century and are still up there. Can 
plausibly be removed with some of these technologies. Um, so this is another example of one of these uh, <laughs> diagrams. This is from the Royal Society. Um, and you could see that these other greenhouse gas emissions like N2O, like methane, um, are being compensated for with carbon removals in this scenario. So how much carbon removal is being discussed? I mean, it depends on how many leftover emissions we are projecting to have, which leads to this discussion of which emissions are generally difficult to eliminate. Um, right now, it's regarded that emissions from electricity can really be uh, eliminated all the way. Um, agriculture, forestry, and land use, a bit more challenging, especially when it comes to fertilizer. Um, but this is a schematic of like, what this is the picture of what we have now. So now I'm gonna show you what some scientists think we actually would have left over if we've actually tried, you know? Cause a lot of these scenarios is, the effort is obviously um, half-hearted, which is what we've seen obviously with climate action generally. But I like this analysis because they really said, okay, what if, we reduced everything we could, even if it was expensive, even if it was politically challenging right now, technically what's hard to get rid of. And they came up with a, a smaller figure than a lot of these reports have had, which is 1.5 to 3.1 gigatons or billion tons. So current emissions are about 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalent right now. So this really is pretty ambitious. And, and what they have left over is, um, fertilizer production stuff, aviation and shipping and possibly buildings. So this, this is a much um, more, I think, realistic goal. Although I know these are huge numbers, it's hard to place them in any kind of... Um, here's another way of looking at it. Where do you put a trillion tons? This is what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, special report on 1.5 degrees indicated that all pathways they were looking at that limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius with a limited or no overshoot, so not passing that target and, and coming back, um, would, would require carbon dioxide removal from between 100 and 1,000 gigatons or billion tons over this century. So this is looking at a cumulative account rather than, uh, amount rather than each year what needs to be removed. Um, and in terms of how to, to do that, how to get that trillion tons out of the atmosphere and into somewhere else, I mean, roughly people are considering ecosystem-based approaches. So putting carbon back into ecosystems, putting carbon back into soils, and as well as engineered or industrial approaches that would sequester it geologically. So injecting it deep underground into rock formations, um, in some cases, formations like exactly the ones it came out of. Um, and probably you have some familiarity with these and I won't talk about all of them, but the idea is that most scientists regard that you would need to do a whole bunch of these things in order to add up to the amounts of carbon removal that would be required. And so there's a big discussion obviously about can we plant a whole bunch of the Republicans here in the US uh, put forth an act to plant a trillion trees 
Greenpeace calls this tree washing, right? Because it's just like a, a feel good response. And there's real land use requirements there. Um, soil carbon sequestration too is something that here in the US we have an increasing policy interest in. Um, and I think also in, in a lot of the UK and also European countries too, thinking about how to put carbon back into the soil because soils have held so much carbon, a lot has been lost through industrial agriculture. So between 20 and 60% of their original organic carbon content. Um, so how do you put <laughs> carbon back into soil? One way is to farm different plants like perennials, things with long root systems, do, doing cover cropping, doing no-till. Um, the, the challenge with these natural climate solutions is that the amount of carbon in those sinks will plateau after a few decades. So you can fill up the soils or you know forest land, um, and then that carbon needs to be held there. Otherwise, it'll just go back into the atmosphere. So if people change their farming practices again, or if there's a wildfire, that carbon becomes lost. So there's concerns about how permanent um, natural climate solutions are, especially with worsening climate change. Some of these natural sinks are projected to or are already um, turning into sources of carbon, which is why um, people are thinking about industrial carbon removal systems because those could go on year after year after year um, and be more permanent. So uh, this is, uh, you know, using nature is being discussed by Shell and a lot of other companies. Um, Greta and other climate activists are rightfully criticizing, you know, this, this magical thinking around um, forests. I do want to say that we should plant more forests, but not use that as a excuse or, you know. So one thing about Shell's discussion of the forest carbon is that they would really like to see governance here. This is their recommendation that there's governance for carbon removals, both natural carbon sticks and man-made during this transition to keep the world within its carbon budget. So, you know, they have an interest in making a framework for all of this. And I just wanna put that out front. Um, and so one thing that Shell and others have mentioned is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So the idea here is to grow biomass, combust it in a power plant and turn it into products, but also sequester the CO2 that's separated out um, underground, which could remove carbon from the atmosphere. And this is already in the models and these models have been rightfully criticized for the very large land demands for bioenergy that these modeling scenarios will generate. But I also wanna say that because of that criticism, people have gone back to both these models and the concept and thought more creatively about how this could be done with um, waste pro products, with forestry waste, with agricultural waste. So there are bioenergy with carbon capture and storage systems that wouldn't have such land intensity. Um, they just might be more expensive and these models tend to solve for least cost solutions. So the other big idea with industrial carbon removal is direct air capture. So extracting CO2 from the air using chemicals. Um, you've maybe seen some of these 
uh, pilot projects. The top picture is from one in Switzerland. The bottom picture is a rendering, um, which alludes to the fact that you need large amounts of renewable energy to run these systems if you want them to be, you know, very carbon negative. So this is something that is pretty expensive. Costs are projected to come down. Nobody really knows what the final cost of this will be. Um, and it needs a lot of abundant low carbon energy for it to work at scale. So there's direct air capture. And underpinning both the bioenergy and the direct air capture is carbon capture and storage. So roughly to draw down a gigaton of CO2, you'd need about a thousand um, facilities of the, the scale that we have now for carbon capture and storage and geological sequestration. You need something like a pipeline network on, on the order of this map to draw down 10 gigatons, which is what a lot of these models kind of end up with as the required amount by the end of the century, you'd need 10,000. Right now there's about 20 or 30 carbon capture and storage facilities on the globe. So obviously this is a very huge, ambitious um, infrastructure, but it's also one that, you know, mainstream policy projections by the International Energy Agency and others are saying that, you know, this is kind of the default thing that we need to do. And I know this is another US specific slide, um, but, but this is actually interesting because they were able to kind of calculate the land demands for just decarbonization without relying on so much of this carbon capture and storage stuff. And the land for wind and solar that we're going to need in any case is really massive. So when they did this Net Zero America study in Princeton, they found, you know, you need wind farms um, with a, a land area of kind of six states in blue in the middle of the country, right? That would be the the amount. Same for solar, really a lot. So, I mean, either in any case, we're having a big kind of new materially intensive transition. Um, that's not to say that I'm minimizing the impacts of the CCS infrastructure either, but it, I mean, the just that I want to emphasize that there's a lot of stuff that needs to be built. We have a very short time to do it, whether we're talking about wind and solar or carbon capture or whatever. And right now we don't have um, a very good vision for, for this, right? How do people live in this kind of net negative world if we manage to build it? What are the social relations? Is it a healthy system or is it just continuing to put the burdens and the externalities upon um, poor communities and communities of color, right? That's kind of the, the question I see is not so much what technologies are in the mix, but how are they being deployed? Um, and so I'll talk about a few different scenarios that we could imagine. I think we could imagine a world with massive carbon removal, but that would be horrible to live in. You might have huge carbon removal plantations for bioenergy and decreased biodiversity, decreased access for communities that previously used these landscapes, um, vast energy demands for, for all of this, low-wage labor, these might be terrible jobs. Um, and, and overall, the cost of this could be borne by workers. We've seen plenty of regressive climate policy proposals in the past. 
Also, there could be the scaled up of negative emissions technologies or carbon dioxide removal that doesn't really deliver. So one particular risk is that carbon CO2 with enhanced oil recovery, which some people say is a bridge to building out this infrastructure, fails to be a bridge. I think that's kind of clear, actually. Um, also, just straight up fraud is another big risk. So you have the appearance and claims of negative emissions without any climate impact. I think that some of what we've seen in the offset space indicates this. Um, and just another word about enhanced oil recovery. I mean, the idea here that is that you capture CO2 from anthropogenic sources, inject it into depleted oil wells, that gets more oil out. Um, but that oil has a lower carbon intensity, so it can be branded as less carbon intensive because actually when you inject the CO2 into these depleted wells, it, it can stay there and you could inject more um, than you needed to extract the oil. So this could be you know, subsidized by the people to facilitate more extraction. I mean, and this is what's already being done, but right now the CO2 in the US anyway is mined from natural sources underground. So we're actually mining CO2 from these underground caverns um, in places like Colorado, New Mexico, and piping it to places like Texas for this process. So oil companies are saying, well, A, our natural deposits of CO2 are running out, and B, we could get it cheaper if we took it from the air and had the government subsidize it. So basically, that's what's going on now. Um, at the same time, the pressure to decarbonize fossil fuels is growing. So people are thinking about how do you make claims that you are having a more climate-friendly product. Um, you could account for cleaning up methane leakage in your system. If you're an oil company, you could couple direct air capture with enhanced oil recovery. If you're in the gas industry, you could blend gas with hydrogen or biogas to make it a lower carbon gas. Um, you could couple this stuff with offsets. So um, that's what we've seen a little bit of. This is a press release from earlier this year, the world's first carbon neutral crude shipment. What they've done is just couple it with offsets, but they say that it's a, a bridge to the development of a further differentiated petroleum product, net zero oil which they intend to produce through capturing atmospheric CO2 via industrial scale, scale direct air capture and sequestering it. Um, there's also a discourse about circular carbon. I'm not gonna go into this because I'm running out of time, um, but this is something that you know Aramco and other big companies are thinking about um, mimicking the natural process of the earth, closing the loop, kind of really using the language of renewables to think about and promote fossil fuels as being something different than what they have been. So tech companies are also trying to think about how to scale up carbon removal as an industry. They have different approaches to it, but um, it's also in interesting to other sorts of corporations beyond fossil fuel companies is the point I'm trying to make with that. Um, so obviously people might say all this, see all this and be like, no, this is bullshit. We think this is ridiculous, right? So another um, possible world is that, you know, the world has the 
the expertise and the knowledge about how to remove carbon, but rejects carbon removal infrastructure because it's seen as a false solution. It's a bunch of climate grift, expensive, which I also think would be um, not a good world because then maybe the climate impacts are worse than what they could have been if we had removed carbon, continue to be disproportionately um, experienced. So this is actually not my preferred scenario either because I think it's pretty clear that we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere and we have the capacity to do it. The problem is just that it's in the hands of these fossil fuel companies. So I think we could try to imagine another world that sees carbon removal as an extension of decarbonization where there's good work, um, especially in communities that have been dependent on extraction, um, where they bring new development, new fun funding to rural communities um, and environmental justice communities where they are a source of, you know, um, benefits, which has been not, not well enough addressed in this space at all. And that the really, you know, the, the polluters are paying for this, not working people. Um, and there's a big discussion to be had here about what address transition means, how, how this works with the managed decline of fossil fuels um, and how it could be put under public ownership and direction. And people say quite reasonably, why don't we wait until we have mitigation well underway before dealing with carbon removal because carbon removal is really just for that last 10 or 20% of emissions anyway. And we need to really be focusing on emissions reductions. And to some, some extent, I agree with that. But the, the problem is that this infrastructure needs time to plan and be built and the technologies still need to be improved. And um, we should be developing it in any case to remove the legacy carbon emissions that are already up there. And so I think that if we wait to engage and kind of make demands around the shape of this technology, then it already will get developed in a way that's best for big companies first and publics second, which I think would be a shame. Um, and so I think the, the question is here is not how do we get to net zero? It's what are we gonna do with the fossil fuel industry? Um, and one reference I recommend che checking out is carbontakeback.org um, as a proposal, one of, of several of how to think about um, making a take back obligation for people who are producing fossil fuels. Um, maybe I'll, I'll leave it there. I could also talk about solar geoengineering for a few minutes if people are interested in hearing about that. But I know that this is already a lot of uh, information and maybe it would be more fruitful to discuss it. Thanks, thanks Holly. Um, I'm gonna, my main argument here that I'm, I'm gonna focus on is that um, the kind of, the left, in terms of what the left say and what, what, what we say about um, geoengineering, that there's no, there should be, or currently at least there's, there should be no uniform kind of formula of, oh, you know, um, carbon interventions are good. I mean, uh, climate interventions are good or climate interventions are bad. Um, but the kind of key factor in how we think about it is how class forces relate to that project. Um, so I'm going to talk both about carbon sequestration that, that the Holly talked about there and about um, solar radiation management. Um, and yeah, just a kind of shout out to the, um, 
the book that Holly has written on this, um, I think, you know, it's, it, it is a very good book in terms of, you know, uh, kind of surveying the, the situation some in that and, and posing some of the questions that the, the left might want to think about. Um, you know, I, I, I don't agree with it entirely and some of that might come out, although that's not going to be my focus. So I guess it kind of like, um, I'll start off with the, the, the problems. Um, so um, I think the first problem, which like Holly um, pointed to, to a lot is, is um, how, uh, you know, these technologies can be used as an excuse to, um, to basically not um, pursue the policies of radical emissions reductions and phasing out fossil fuels that, that is what we need um, and that, you know, whether, whether that they are embraced as, as a kind of facade uh, by like, you know, oil companies or the like, or, or, or by, you know, the, those on the left who, who embrace geo, geoengineering, um, as it's called, I'll try and not use that term because I don't think it's the most useful, but who embrace like um, mass carbon removal or uh, mass uh, like solar radiation management. Um, so often that's linked to a kind of perhaps a reformist approach where they, which means they're not wanting to directly come, confront capital so much. And so they want a kind of slower transition than, than we might want. Um, um, Holly gave the examples of the oil companies on, on the side. So solar radiation management, actually I should have um, explained that. So that's, that's the idea of basically um, trying to confront global warming by rather than or, or as, a, as a separate project from removing the the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that are going into the atmosphere or taking them out um, is to reduce the amount of um, heat that is coming into the, the, the planet in other ways. So the most prominent proposal, which which is is, is kind of the main one I'll focus on, is, is the idea of um, injecting sort of like an aerosol of, of some, some chemical, or often some kind of sulfide into the stratosphere, um, and that will reflect some of the sun's rays and you know, other, other things like space mirrors or whatever the, the people talk about. But that, that's the most commonly advocated one. Um, and this is also often linked to apologism. So um, Richard Branson um, said, um, you know, if, if we could come up with a geoengineering solution to this problem, um, Copenhagen wouldn't be necessary. We could carry on flying um, our planes and driving our cars. So whilst that, 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 that's, that kind of brazen attitude isn't probably what most like scientists researching geoengineering would, would think, and that is the kind of dominant um, narrative coming from the, the sections of the ruling class who are most loudly championing it. The sec second key problem is the kind of reality of the devastating side effects of a lot of it. So Holly talks about that with, um, you know, the different types of carbon sequestration, carbon removal, the, the, the kind of downsides of that. With solar radiation management, I think that's kind of even more pronounced. Um, you know, it, it varies from... Um, you know, the, it, it could well affect the kind of hydrological cycle in, in really drastic ways, causing, causing droughts in some places, monsoons in others, um, and, you know, affecting billions of people around the world. It, it would likely degrade the ozone layer. Um, it would, you know, if it's sulfites, it would cause acid rain and, and air pollution. Um, and, you know, people often talk about, um, yeah, like, you know, it turning the sky white and turning it 
you know, more more white. But actually, the kind of bigger problem is that it it kind of changes the color of 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 the light that we're getting on on Earth. And um, you know, and n- n- not so much that oh, you know, this is going to change the color of how everything looks. Although you know that because that'll be a very minor thing. But we don't know exactly. Like there are so many varied ecosystems around the world, and taking out you know specific um sections of the kind of electromagnetic spectrum or attenuating them like a, a lot more could have um pretty uh, devastating effects a kind of third critique is is a kind of more general one against what might be described as a, a dominant domination conquering or, or kind of completely mastery of nature um, and and those kind of critiques you can see in like a lot of uh, marxist uh writings from from kind of marx and Engelson themselves are kind of more recent ones um, you also get the, that kind of narrative in the wider environment I think there's, there's there's a lot of problems with it but I think there's also lots of interesting stuff in there I'm not going to say more about that but I think kind of what that point does get to in, in a more straightforward level is that the the world's kind of the the many different ecosystems and, and geologic uh, you know Weather systems and, and, and geological systems and so on around the world are, are like incredibly complicated and, and interact in many ways that we just don't understand. Um, and this is talking about a like un, unprecedented, um, well, I, 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 either of them, in particular solar radiation management, but a, a lot of the changes that would be involved in carbon capture and storage um, would um, be a kind of unprecedented changing with it. Um, and like, you know, to give a kind of medical analogy, like the gold standard in whether we, you know, whether a uh, medical intervention, whether it's a, like vaccine or some medicine or an operation or whatever is a food, isn't a kind of persuasive um, accounting of what the mechanism by which it works is. You know, if we give you, you know, if we if we remove this thing from, from their body, then they should get better in that way. Or, you know, if we spray stuff into the stratosphere, it will affect stuff. But is is uh, like um, is trials and, and, and statistical evidence that is the gold standard uh, of medicine. Um, and you know, obviously, we've only got one planet, um, so there's kind of significant limits to how much we can do that. Um, and and these kind of critiques of of it is, has been kind of in, in workers' liberty in the past, particularly focusing on solar radiation management has has, has been our basic stance of what we said said of it. And, I think that's kind of right to first approximation. Um, however, I think uh, what we've said, and, and more importantly, maybe what we haven't said, has been kind of vague and limited. Um, and and the conversation about this will will only become more a, a thing. So we need to ha- have something to say. So I, I think there's, um, I think there's how many doing for time? Okay. Uh, Right, um, I'm gonna have to brush. Okay, now I'm gonna. Um, I don't want to talk, talk, talk even faster. And um, so, um, yeah, I guess there is a kind of radical argument that you can make for for these kind of climate interventions. What? Um, and and first of all, I'm gonna kind of present the argument, kind of abstract, if you like, from the the class forces of of, of how it be implemented. So, so you know, it starts off by looking at how shit the situation is. Like, you know, three weeks ago, we saw a building collapse in the USA in part um, because of the kind of undermining of its foundations due to, to, to climate work, uh, change. You know, last year, 
there were forest fires uh, and and heat waves about uh, you know in, in in many parts of the world and um, you know beginning of that last year obviously or at the end of the year before in fact you know we saw a, a kind of zoonotic spillover um, and which has caused the COVID nineteen pandemic that kind of like environmental destruction. Um, makes that kind of thing more and more likely. So you kind of start with that and you say, you know, we we haven't even got to 1.5 degrees C. Um, the, like the 1.5 degrees C is is seen as the kind of like 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 the kind of goal or the dream by like a, a, a lot of kind of environmental activists um, or people talking about environmental stuff. Um, but you know, we haven't got there, and it's this bad already. Like we shouldn't content be content or accept that. Um, and you know, I think we we need to critique the IPCC and the um, Committee on Climate Change um, uh, for, for for their kind of conservatism in in their um, scenarios they put out. You know, the, the, their science in general is like is you know it, is very valuable, but in terms of the kind of changes they imagine, it's it, it's very conservative. Um, and um, yeah, and so like the main thing we need to do to tackle this is to is to phase out fossil fuels as fast as possible. That it, you know that should be the central focus of, of our energies, and it has been been um, and not not just from fossil fuels but from other major sources. Um, but that, that that isn't what's happening. But but the main focus is to make it what's happening. Um, I guess like you know I I'd also some of the, the critiques of I will I haven't read the paper in question like. I, I suspect if I did, I would probably apply some of the critiques that I make of the IPCC and the, and the CCC to the, the kind of paper that uh, the, the glass holly put up in terms of the kind of residual carbon emissions, like, um, you know, in terms of, um, the you know, you talked about the kind of fuel for international shipping, you talked about air fuel, it talks about kind of the role, role of like manure. And um, I think with a kind of, more imaginative uh, transformation of society in these industries that could be reduced um, significantly more. So, you know, that's the first step of the argument, but, you know, we still end up in a world which has all of the carbon dioxide that we've had to date. We should, of course, pursue uh, ecosystem restoration, but all, you know, all around the world, and um, soil restoration, that's good for the health of the ecosystems, for biodiversity, for the soil itself. And that is good, um, and that will take up some carbon. Um, that's also not happening, and and and, and is is something although although secondary to to fight for. But even you know, even if those first two things are done, we still end up with you know the um, ecosystem restoration. You know, more or less takes back the everything that was released by the ecosystems degrading in the first place. We don't get back all of the carbon dioxide from fossil fuels, so that poses then the the, the, the need for kind of mass carbon sequestration, and and you know we need to recognise that that is very harmful for the reasons kind of you know it, it all, all of the proposals would would have very significant harms and in the ways that kind of fully sketched a lot of them may not be possible um, or and certainly would be very difficult like orders of magnitude more difficult than, than leaving it in the ground. Um, however, you know, if it is necessary to, as a kind of waste cleanup for the, you know, all the time between now and the, the industrial revolution, um, 
And then you can kind of go a step forwards and say, you know, that still wouldn't be fast enough. Um, there are many things that aren't reversible, like species driven into extinction, um, where come out of extinction when we, if we get carbon dioxide back down to pre-industrial levels, glasses that melted when just reconstitute themselves, um, sea, sea levels will, will still rise. And so then you get a case for kind of various types of uh, solar radiation management or more or kind of types of car, uh, climate intervention that are, uh, you know, that aren't waste removal so much as it's trying to kind of take an alternative route to dealing with the ecosystem. Now, um, I think that's very harmful and very dangerous, um, but, you know, at least there needs to be a lot of research into, into whether it's, it's possible uh, and um, whether it's a kind of, that's a less evil than um, letting climate, uh, climate change go on. But even that, you know, is not enough and is incredibly damaging. Um, the climate change will still be incredibly damaging, even if we do see solar radiation management that works well, doesn't have bad effects. And so, so we kind of need adaptation, which also has problems. I'm going to kind of skip over a bit there. So I think that's kind of a, a kind of radical argument for, for, uh, for uh, climate interventions that, that, that could be made. But I think it's notable to say the kind of few geoengineering or, you know, few, few climate engineering Five minutes left. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. I feel like I've mostly just been given kind of background to my, my main argument, but um, anyway, that's that's my fault. Um, uh, so yeah, kind of few few geoengineering proponents kind of make the argument in in exactly that way. Kind of it, even on the left, it, it's often talked about as a kind of way to as something that should be used to compensate for continued emissions, um, which is kind of not okay as, you know, in the, the argument I was making, I think, you know, the aim should be to reduce emissions as far as possible. Um, and the role of these climate interventions should be deal with historic emissions. I mean, that's something I'd kind of, um, I think Holly has talked about um, elsewhere. And I think that the last suggestion was kind of, Talking about you know making those who've made the most pollution responsible for cleaning it up. I, I guess I, I think we should reject that approach um, in the sense that um, well, it, it feeds into the idea that kind of continued emissions are okay as long as it's cleaned up. Um, and, I, and I think the, the the approach we really need is um, you know where are the resources to deal with the problem that that, that we have, and, and and that might be with the fossil fuel companies. Um, and is certainly with the kind of ruling class. So I guess in terms of like, um, yeah, and, and I guess the reason that argument isn't made because um, the, the the kind of genuinely needed solution of, of, of extremely rapid um, decarbonisation, extremely rapid phasing out of fossil fuels, um, seems kind of undesirable to some because of, of their class interests um, or and the kind of the kind of propaganda um, perpetrated by 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 the kind of sections of like the fossil fuel industry and others which benefit from that, or or that it seems unfeasible for for kind of similar reasons, or they want to do it less slowly or or more slowly or, or kind of less drastically because their their vision is kind of limited in, in radicalism. 
So I guess, you know, I, I uh, you know, said, um, you know, I feel like, you know, I'd say, and hopefully kind of my argument point towards why I'd say that kind of if we had like tomorrow, you know, a, a socialist society and a kind of worker state, um, you know, around the world, um, that we would do something like um, what, I, what I outlined in the sense of, um, you know, phasing out fossil fuels as fast as possible um, and other emissions, but still pursuing um, initially research and then deployment of, um, probably deployment of, of, of kind of um, mass scale carbon sequestration and um, solar radi radiation management. Um, you know, we, we are in favour of technology. Um, you know, a lot of the left isn't, but, you know, we're, we're not against nuclear power, for example. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we also like, I guess, the kind of Trotskyist tradition that, that we in Workers' Liberty would, would see ourselves in and not just kind of reactive against whatever the ruling class does. So, um, you know, the ruling class uh, or, 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 you know, in this case, like sections of the ruling class, which, uh, you know, want to carry on with fossil fuel extraction um, uh, or, or, or flying planes, um, you know, advocate these technologies. That doesn't mean we just simply oppose it. However, we we aren't there. Like, you know, so socialist revolution hasn't happened, and um, you know, hopefully it'll happen soon. Um, and and you know, we need to, we need to organise to make that happen. Um, but but we also need some answers for today. And so you know, often our approach, um, you know, we we talk about kind of transitional demands talk about, you know, creating demands which are, uh, are setting our entire agitating them within the labour movement and trying to win them and demands which point towards socialism, um, and, but kind of both winning those demands because they're good in themselves and also the, the kind of fight to, to win them is, is part of the kind of stepping stone towards um, socialist revolution. But, but when we do so, um, you know, and, and, and so the approach with transitional demands often we would then, you know, the starting point to think about what we're demanding is, is what we ideally would want if a workers' government was in power. But the, 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 you know, the way we approach it is, is in our own way, kind of recognising the, the, the class dynamics at hand. Um, and we don't always take that approach. So I was trying to think of kind of analogies or, or kind of, you know, I think in workers' liberty, we think kind of learning from the kind of politics and debates and history of, of our movement, of the kind of revolutionary Marxist movement, is important. And I was trying to think of, you know, uh, analogies in, in this area. Um, and I guess one that I was was kind of thinking about um, in some ways was, was kind of like, uh, was about war. So, um, I mean, I think a lot of the narrative around kind of war and climate stuff has been problematic, but this is coming from quite, quite a different angle. Um, in the sense that, um, so, you know, in 2019, um, you know, Turkish forces, uh, Turkey invaded Syria, um, and a lot of the left um, in the UK widely criticised this um, and, and condemned it, you know, called for... Um, well, yeah, was was opposing that, but, but 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 quite a lot of them kind of went a step forwards further and called for um, you know active uh, military intervention, whether a no-fly zone or, or something else, by the British state and American state. Um, cool. Um, okay, okay, I'll, I'll try and wrap up in, in, in thirty seconds. Um, I guess we criticised that call for intervention, um, but 
a, our, our central argument is is that like we preach distrust in in the ruling class, and we we don't trust them to you know in general we don't trust their military um, address ventures. We 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 recognise their kind of imperial interests and we recognise their track record on such matters is, is very bad. Um, and but we equally we we didn't kind of simply kind of denounce. You know, if that had happened, we wouldn't have simply denounced it either. I mean, I guess my contention then in my final 30 seconds is is the kind of we need to have, if not quite on the same level, but kind of a similarly kind of scathing attitude towards um, a lot of these technologies. Um, if the kind of ruling class was to, uh, oh, yeah, so, 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 so. That on the kind of war analogy, I guess, you know, if there was a worker state nearby, I don't think we would oppose, you know, impose, opposing, imposing a, I mean, you know, obviously we have an international revolution, but in a kind of transitional period, I don't think we would oppose it offering, you know, military assistance to an uprising in a country necessarily. Um, but yeah, with ruling class, with the ruling class of geoengineering, um, it would be done in a way that would be in the interest of the ruling class, not, not the vast majority of the world. It would be in, in the interest of the global north, probably, not the global south. It, it might well be linked to kind of military things as, as research has historically. And it would be very short, short-sighted in the sense of, you know, solar radiation management solves one problem, causes 10 others. And it kind of kicking the can uh, down the way, down, down the road is something that, like competing, uh, the, the, the capitalism and a system of international capitalist states um, does all the time, and, and it would take this approach to these technologies. So, um, sorry for going over, but um, thanks a lot. Yeah, very much appreciated that last point about, you know, demands for open tech as this will be publicly funded. Um, and just to echo one of the earlier comments that, I don't think capitalism is capable of accomplishing carbon removal at a climate significant scale. Um, this is discussed in my book, but I mean, it's the state is really the only actor that could deliver this. And so we are really in a position to make some demands. Um, and more generally, too, I think that we think about fossil capital as being monolithic or really powerful, but I actually think that fossil capital is kind of weak right now, never been anyway. And, you know, we have big tech capital as ascendant and maybe that there's some strategic thinking to be done around all of that. Um, but I'll move on. I, on the war analogy, you know, I think that we've just never had to what we have to do is unprecedented. We've never had to plan a transformation that's global and that touches all of these systems, energy, food production, waste management, industry, et cetera, um, and to build this much stuff, right? So I guess war is kind of the go-to thing. And, you know, Andreas Malm's book, um, Corona, climate, chronic emergency, whatever, the triple C book talks a lot about war, the war metaphor. So does Christian Parenti's um, essay in our anthology, 
has it come to this, the promise and peril of geoengineering on the brink. So he has a chapter in that that's like a left defense of carbon removal that really also draws on this war analogy. Um, I'm not so sold on it as being strategic. I think that one of the dangers is that it doesn't resonate with younger people in the same way, or they might just not have the, the reference point. Um, I would love it if we could develop a different, you know, conceptual language, but maybe war is what we've got. Uh, on Catherine's question around the pandemic, I think that, you know, being in the U.S., I had a different experience maybe around thinking around, um, you know, individual behavioral restrictions. So my, my conclusion is that, you know, where they have people here talking about the specter of climate lockdowns, saying that COVID lockdowns was like the preface and already preparing to fight against that. So from my perspective, I think that we need a, a different language and tactic altogether that doesn't emphasize individual restriction, that really emphasizes the structural conditions and the role of the polluters and the role of industry in cleaning things up rather than individuals sacrificing. I, I don't think we can try that again here in our cultural context anyway. The other two things I think about in relation to the pandemic, um, it's just that, you know, I have a colleague that says a, a pandemic is a virus plus a society. Um, climate change is, you know, warming plus a society, right? We, we just, in our response, did not put enough attention on the inequalities in our society. Um, and I fear to be the same with, I mean, it is the same with climate change, but if we could draw a lesson from this, it would be to, to see the, the social really focus more on communities that are at the most risk and prioritize them. Um, the, other, the other takeaway from the pandemic for me is about the language of emergency, which I, I did use actually quite a bit earlier in terms of like the climate emergency, because obviously it's, there's elements of it that are a crisis, are an emergency, but looking globally, that language of emergency really opened up a lot of repression um, in other countries. And I am now very wary about thinking of it or as a climate emergency, because I think it opens the door to rushed implementations of solar geoengineering in particular, and I would want to avoid that. So you know, I think war is better than emergency. I think we need something even better that just thinks about this as like a decades long planning challenge that we need to have the resources for. Um, and then finally, um, Stuart had a lot of great questions and comments. I think that uh, this waste management um, analogy, I have a paper, if you guys are interested, it's should carbon removal be treated as waste management question mark because I have some issues with it, but I looked at the history of how we decided to manage waste. I mean, obviously we're not doing a great job of it in some sectors like plastics, but we do have, you know, functional sanitation systems in a lot of countries now. Um, so how did we decide to do both clean up solid and liquid waste? Um, it was really two streams, one is like public health, sanitary engineers, kind of experts giving their opinions, but also the public movements, right? And especially women had a, a big role in these sanitation movements kind of coming together. And I hope we could see a similar thing 
in terms of civil society and sort of experts um, in dialogue to get this, you know, get get the idea that we need to clean this waste up, right? Um, and I do, I do agree with Stuart that it will emerge at the point of crisis. And that's where this emergency language does become useful, right? Um, yeah, I'll leave off there. <laughs> but thank you all for all of your thoughtful comments. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so if I had time to speak better, uh, I was going I would I, I would have given a few kind of co concrete demands proposals. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read them out anyway, although I kind of wanted them to kind of uh, spark more discussion. And um, I also realized I kind of maybe calibrate the tone of my talk. I was expecting people to be generally more anti-Jewish geoengineering, and I thought I was going to be on the most pro-geoengineering end of the cloud. Um, but okay, so the, these are the um, these are what I was going to say. So specifically, I think we're, we should oppose all um, enhanced oil recovery and the, any use of uh, CCS for in, uh, uh, carbon capture and storage to, to, to squeeze more oil out of the ground. Oppose any, and, and, and we should also oppose any attempts to approach sequestration as, as, as offset as, as allowing overshoot and as permitting carbon markets. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, um, t tackling its use in a kind of greenwashing way. And kind of secondly, that we should, you know, recognize that kind of carbon capture is still tinkering. Um, that you know, it, or maybe taking this the wrong way, that it, it's still uh, you know, secondary in, in, in our fight currently. It, it doesn't make good of something bad. Though you know, we should oppose fossil fuels. We should oppose coal, oil, and gas power station. We should also oppose the kind of many of the kind of large scale biomass. Um, so, so, so in, in, in the UK, we have the Drax uh, power station, which. Um, you know, on a kind of life cycle analysis, is, is probably wasting coal in terms of carbon output. It involves cutting down like redwood wood forest from North America, shipping it over here. It's it's incredibly bad for the uh, environment. So we should oppose that, and, and we should kind of denounce attempts to use carbon capture and storage to kind of greenwash them, which you know has been attempted. And that um, we should we should also kind of criticise. It when when these technologies are are used as an excuse for uh, a a kind of slower um, transition than that might be otherwise possible, and, and then, then my, my kind of fourth you know proposed demand was a massive program of cross disciplinary um, and critical research and development of, of other carbon sequestration methods and. Um, no trust in the market. It, it, it must be publicly funded, democratically controlled, and paid free. Um, so that's for the kind of carbon sequestration. And, and, and then a, a kind of slightly different angle with the kind of massive program of cross disciplinary and critical research for solar radiation management and other such climate interventions. But, but um, kind of maybe going a bit further and saying like no trust in, in the ruling class um, um, in the sense that, that, that um, you know, the research must be publicly owned and democratically controlled and transparent and, and, and pay and fee. Um, but that, you know, in response to a lot, you know, in, in the near future, um, until there's much more research than there is, in, in the top, 
in, in response to attempts to kind of propose large scale solar radiation management, um, that you know we should, you know, one of our top top slogans should be about kind of no no trust in the ruling class, um, and you know criticizing its limitations that you know specific poses limitations, making specific criticisms that not enough research, specific impacts, whatever. And, 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 and we affirm that it's palliative, but that we shouldn't outright oppose it, as well as not necessarily actively supporting it. So I think kind of without me giving that, I think uh, I think I probably wasn't very clear on on on, on, on why I was advocating overall. Um, in terms of you know it wasn't I, I guess it was uh, me, me not being clear that I, I don't know. I wasn't entirely clear what Paul was saying that he kind of disagreed with me about. Um, I you know very much agree in kind of putting demands on, on the ruling class now. Um, several of those were. I mean, I think Paul would probably also agree that like the majority of our environmental demands should still be focused on stopping kind of fossil fuel extraction and and, and burning um, as they currently are. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of the war analogy, I kind of I kind of winced a little bit as I said it because I realised that I was thinking in a very specific context, which is, is, is different from how it's often used. And that I was thinking like, what did our movement say in around past wars? And I think I think Ed's example of the kind of like you know trade union control of of the kind of war effort it, uh, it, it is like by an instructive one um, and. Um, is yeah, kind of. I think links quite nicely to the kind of like no trust in the ruling class. Um, I very much don't agree with like the way those people, including Andreas Mann, um, on the left, um, you know, talk about it in okay, um, talk about it in terms of um, basically the kind of like bourgeois states war effort in like World War Two, and the, basically the the bourgeois state is the kind of agent of change to. Um, make these changes happen um, and uh, yeah um, I mean yeah in terms of like yeah I guess just in terms of like planting trees to, you know I have kind of written extensively in favour of a, a mass programme of, uh, of tree planting workers of tea voted on our last climate conference for, for kind of policy that uh, uh, something that I, I drafted the kind of initial draft of you know which included advocating planting planting trillion trees so I think that's necessary um, but we do also need to think about other factors beyond climate change uh, you know a, a trillion monoculture trees um, which would you know cause soil then uh, degradation which would release more more methane but it would also have devastating biological effects um, as well as social ones. There were many other things that um, I didn't get uh, respond to, so I apologise about that. But um, you know, I I think and hope that this is, has sparked a kind of good debate. I was you know trying to be as kind of controversial whilst saying what I believed as, as I could. But I I, I hope that um, you know we can we can have it further in the paper um, and that further meetings. So thank you.